Hello and welcome to Downstream, Navara Media's second most intellectually stimulating interview series. Navara FM being, of course, number one. Downstream is just Navara FM for people who watch MasterChef if you needed an introduction to the product. So it's been a year since that fateful exit poll came in and absolutely nothing much of interest has happened in that time. It's going to be a, a really short year in review show. You may as well just leave now, put the kettle on. Um, okay, obviously a lot has happened. And if you cast your mind back to a year ago, weirdly enough, the only person whose predictions withstood the test of time is actually Guido reporter Tom Harwood, uh, who tweeted back in December 2019, if Boris wins, the 20s are going to be so roaring. One deadly pandemic and a global economic downturn backdropped by the revival of fascistic street movements later. And well, here we are. It seems like Tom Harwood is our very own Cassandra, whose prophecies were destined to be mocked before they came true. Sometimes it's good to take a step back from the mad clamor of the news cycle and just take stock of the year that's been. And that's what tonight's show is all about. The big picture stuff and how the last 12 months have transformed our political culture. Tonight, it is a family show, and I'm delighted to be joined by Navara's co-founders, or Zaddies, as they actually prefer <laughs> to be known, James Butler and Aaron Bastani. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Very well, Ash. <laughs> have you ever been called a Zaddy before, James? I, I just want to know. I haven't, I haven't. Where does it come from? Zona Defendre? I don't know. Oh, there's a song of they keep calling me Zaddy, which I thought that people just sang to you whenever you entered the room. <laughs> My tragic lack of, of touch with uh, popular culture strikes again, I'm afraid. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into it, um, what is the best or least bad thing that's happened to you this year? When you kick us off, Aaron. Without any shadow of a doubt, uh, buying a French bulldog. Is he with Gino. you? Gino. Uh, he's not. I've locked him out. No, it's about it, it's about this time of the evening. He starts to hump my arm, so uh, we have to be we have to be temporarily separated at the moment. He humps my arm around now, or if I if I lie down on the sofa, he starts humping my arm. Uh, we, so do you give gonna... off a hump my arm kind of vibe? Have you considered that? What's, no. What's strange is he doesn't do it with my uh, my, my fiance Charlotte. He just does it to me, um, and he just does it to my arm, not my leg which is really interesting. And whenever, and it's always, when he's basically trying to seduce my arm, he's always, he always paws at it with the same right paw. So I, I don't quite know what's going on in his head. I mean, his brain is obviously tiny. It's like the size of a walnut. I don't know what's going on in there. You know, how is, how is Gino kind of, you know, making sense of all of this? But uh, yeah, it's not fun. So that's, so that's so we're the together right now. that's happened this year is, is arm humping. My humping French bulldog. You know, I think so. It's been it's been really lovely to have Gino. It's uh, it's made a, a a grim year that little bit brighter. And you know, he's just he's great. He just makes you laugh for no reason sometimes, which is what we all need. We don't have enough of that. You know, just. What about you, uh, James? What is the best thing that's happened mm -hmm. to you this uh, year? Well, has anyone humped your arm? And nobody has humped my arm, um, which is which I'm probably quite thankful for, actually, to be honest. Um, the best thing that's happened to me this year, I, well, I've been participating in, I mean, it's been an odd year for us in some ways. Uh, I've been participating in uh, a sort of reading group uh, uh, which we've done sort of various of the Shakespeare plays, read them live over Zoom, 
Um, uh, I played Hamlet, which was uh, really very gratifying. Um, you played the Dane. I did play the Dane, um, but now we're on Paradise Lost, which uh, is obviously incredibly exciting. It's an extraordinary thing um, to be reading. So yeah, it, it, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it's perverse really, because I feel like the, the group of people who are doing it, I don't, I'm not sure that we would ever have been able to schedule a time together to do it were we not in the middle of a plague. And obviously I'm not grateful for the plague, um, but it does feel rather like we're making the best out of it. It's almost, it's almost Boccaccio-like. It's almost like <laughs> retreating um, to, to your castle uh, from the, not that I live in a castle, I live on a boat. Um, but it's almost <laughs> like, you know, retreating away from the city and, and, and um, you know, telling each other sort of rather wonderful stories uh, and trying to learn uh, or, 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 or go back to your roots and, and, and think in a way that's uh, not entirely dominated by the horror going on around you it's really it's it's quite a wonderful experience actually i mean can you guess what my favorite shakespeare is you probably should be able to you've known mm. me a long time. <laughs> oh god mm. well i mean it, mm, uh, are, you, are you an othello girl no i, I am an othello yeah, girl okay yeah okay <laughs> uh yeah no i mean you know othello not one that we've done i mean coriolanus is really the one i want to do it's extraordinary play kind of exactly about you know many of the things that affect us today uh, including this you know extraordinary speech this extraordinary speech that Coriolanus gives um, you know in, which is riven with his hatred of democracy um, you know this this total loathing um, for the idea that he would have to sub, sub you know subjugate himself or uh, abase himself to win the vote of people he considers his lessers um, you know it's also all bound up um, with that question of what motivates people who, who have these you know rather extreme politics um, and for him there's this all kind of horrible psychosexual thing going on behind it so really really you know brilliant and very very exciting play so I'm not going to draw it. any conclusions about the <laughs> hatred of democracy and subjugating uh, yourself to the votes of people who are your lesser I couldn't bear to draw any conclusions between your personality and uh, the events <laughs> of maybe even the last general election um, no. to your reading of that play um, Speaking of the last general election, this leads me to the first thing that I want to talk about, which is Boris's landslide victory against Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. I don't think any of us need to revisit how we felt at that particular moment. I think I was praying for the sweet release of death uh, when I found myself on the ITV couch somewhere around like one in the morning. Um, but I think that there are still huge questions hanging over that result. And I think hit the big one is this. We keep asking, why did Labour lose? And we never ask, how is it that the Conservatives have consistently added to their vote share in every election since 2001? Why are the Conservative Party the most formidable election fighting machine in Western Europe? Any takers? Aaron, James. I'll go first, if you, if you, if you don't mind, James. Or... Sure, sure. Go ahead. I mean, strictly speaking, that's not true. So the Icelandic Nationalist Party, uh, I believe they won the largest share of the vote in each national election between 1930 and 2008-9. Uh, so there are examples in Europe of one-party states, um, practically. Or in Japan, you've got the Liberal Democrat Party, for instance. Uh, in Ireland, you've had a, a two-party. And I understand, of course, yes, Labour and the Tories are two parties, but you know, two-party system, which is really effectively just a one, much more similar to a one-party system than anything we've already seen in this country over the last 80 years. So 
I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the case. And I think the success the Conservatives have enjoyed since 1979 is a bit distinct to what they enjoyed before, uh, particularly after the Fourth Reform Act and, and basically universal suffrage after the First World War. I think you can basically decouple two periods of Conservative Party electoral hegemony, one where they're kind of going up and then down, and one where they'll, like you say, and this is where it gets really interesting, they seem to be just going up. You know, there's no real down at the moment. And why do I think that's happening? I think well, two, there are two separate things to say. I think on the one hand, you're right. We always talk about how Labour are doing badly and not how the Tories are doing well. But Labour are doing badly. You know, Labour have lost the actual vote, the electoral vote in England every year since 2005. So even when Blair wins in 2005... You know, it's a Labour government at 10 Downing Street, majority of sort of 60 odd. They lose the national vote in England. So people say, oh, we've lost four elections. I, I think in some ways, actually, Labour have lost the last five elections. Given that they're not going to be winning Scotland back anytime soon, I think that's probably a more useful way of looking at things. And then if you look at Labour's performance in England since 2005, mid 30s generally, under Gordon Brown, it goes to two, uh, in, in 2010, it goes to 28%. With Jeremy Corbyn, it goes to, I think, more than 40% in 2017, and then it collapses again. So clearly, the, the politics of England, I think, are the main point for me in terms of what happens to Labour now. And I think many of the people who sort of think, well, Labour now, they're going to prepare for government, Corbyn's gone, Keir Starmer for PM, they aren't reckoning with the fact that Scotland's gone, Wales may go, and actually, Labour does face an existential challenge in many parts of England. We could talk about perhaps why. <laughs> As a short answer to the Tory question, why do they do better? They are obviously much better at raising money. There is obviously a right-wing bent to the media in this country, which is getting significantly worse as market mechanisms generally fail. Clearly, that only empowers uh, media outlets owned by and for wealthy people. And then finally, and I don't think we talk about this nearly enough, the Conservative Party actually hire people who are good at their jobs. So when you look at, for instance, the digital media campaign in the last election, the Tories did a fantastic job. The people they hire for Facebook ads, you know, and we don't need to talk about the content necessarily because a lot of it's lies and uh, propaganda, but let's talk about the form. The people they're hiring are often world class. They are trying to mimic and mirror, you know, the best practice out there of any political party, you know, anywhere in the world. Labour don't do that. And that's not a problem just with the left. That's a problem with the centre. That's a problem with the right of the party. And if you look at somebody like Ian McNichol, who was Jenny Formby's uh, predecessor as general secretary, the, the guy wasn't, you know, able to run a bath. You know, he should have been absolutely nowhere near the apex of power of what was, in any case, one of the largest, most influential political parties in Europe. You know, Britain is one of the sort of three big countries in Europe. Labour is one of its two historic parties of government. <clears throat> Someone like Ian McNichol was grossly unqualified for that. So I think the really simple answer for the Tories doing so much better so often is that they, they get the best people. And I think part of the problem for Labour, and it's a question it has to answer, is it does everything by committee. Uh, and that's not always necessarily a democratic committee. Labour just like in a little bit, but I want to kind of mm, zero mm, in mm. on the Conservative Party because James, I don't know what you make of this. Aaron's explanation I, is money, media, management. Sure, but um, yeah, I mean, Aaron has Aaron has just done. I think you know, you know, I, I think everything that Aaron says there is true. Um, but but you know, I mean, it's striking to me that when we talk about um, the Conservative Party, we very rapidly 
you know, head back to start talking about the failings of the Labour Party. And this is, it's absolutely a habit on the British left. And I understand where it comes from. And that, but, but that habit, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't help us explain what has actually, you know, what actually happens in the Tory party itself. When the Tory party wins elections, the left will very often go and say, oh, well, this is because, uh, you know, the Labour Party has done something wrong. The Labour Party has lost this election because of something to do with the internal dynamics of the Labour Party. Now, very often that's true, right? You know, that is part of the explanation um, for the last election, certainly. Um, and it's part of the explanation for the last few elections. However, it's worth saying that it's a story of, you know, two halves. The, you know, the Tory party is successful and it is successful for reasons that have nothing to do with the Labour Party. One of the reasons the Conservative Party is successful is that it is always looking at how its electoral coalition will change. It's always looking at who it needs to lock in, who it can bring to its side, who it can bring on board with the project of landlordism, private property, and so on and so on. And so I think it's important to recognise that, you know, the Tories understand that their electoral, you know, their electoral coalition is dynamic. It changes. Um, the Labour Party, through various reasons, one of which is sentimentalism. Um, it's not the only reason, but it is one of them. Uh, you know, you can never say, oh, our electoral coalition is changing. Here's where it's going. This is, you know, these are the risks that it opens us up to. It, that conversation has started to happen in the wake of the last election. It's still nowhere near as advanced as it could be. So I think that's, you know, really extremely important. Obviously, the conditions are different as well. It's true that the Conservative Party is interested in hiring people who are good at their jobs. You would hope that would be a sine qua non for the Labour Party as well, but it's not. The other stuff here is to do with... Um, you know, with the landscape of the press. Uh, the, the press in this country, and you know, it's something I've been thinking about, you know, something I've been thinking about for the past decade, but certainly more so in the past uh, few weeks, is it's very, very hard to think how you can you know, win an election from the left in this country without really profoundly altering the media landscape. People don't like to hear that because they think if you just try hard enough, it will work. But there's you know, there are other fronts that need fighting on other than just simply the pure effort. You can give us loads of money. That will help. Uh, <laughs> we're trying to change the media landscape. We're currently uh, in the middle of a fundraising campaign. We're looking for 500 new supporters by the end of December. And <clears> if you want to be one of them or you know someone who does, go to navarro.media forward slash support. I mean, talking about that change, to the electoral coalition. I want to put this to both of you and see what you make of it. The thing which I keep thinking about is the way in which class composition has changed. Not that class isn't important or, you know, in the words of John Prescott, quite famously, we're all middle class now. Plainly, we're not. Um, you know, my mum, when she was my age, had her first kids, owned a house, you know, fairly decent standard of living, which meant that she, you know, could start a family. Me, I can barely afford my own cheese plant. Do you know what I mean? There's nowhere near <laughs> home ownership or, or having kids or anything like that. So class still hugely shapes our lives. Um, the organization of the workforce, um, you know, the fact that there's been a squeeze on wages, which has been the worst since the Napoleonic Wars, which I know is one of Aaron's favorite facts. <laughs> um, <laughs> class is hugely important. But class identity, seems to be decoupled from the economic base. So often when we're talking about who is working class, we're talking about people who have a historic relationship to, you know, what used to be the, the 
driving heart of the productive economy of, of manual labor, factory work, mining work, um, all those things which got smashed to pieces, uh, you know, through the 1980s. People who have got a historic connection to those forms of work, but aren't living in cities, are probably not so heavily indebted. Um, you know, educational status is still seen as a defining feature of what class you are, even though the expansion of, of university attendance came with the immiseration of the student body through, you know, lumbering tens of thousands of pounds worth of debt. And so I wonder if where we are in terms of electoral behavior is a result of this decoupling of class identity from the economic base. And the fact that the Conservative Party have worked out quite cannily how to assemble a coalition of homeowners, which spans both that, you know, historic um, manual labor and, you know, higher education class divide, but is able to sort of replay the kind of emotional notes of, of that class divide. Well, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's complicated, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the other part of this question is reminds me of the, of the, the argument that's made in um, the, the, the beginning of you know, the preface to, to making the English working class, which is, you know, to do with, with seeing class as a dynamic relation, something that occurs in the relationship between <clears throat> uh, the worker and capitalist, as it were worker employee um but it but it is complicated because you know once because those i don't because you know class is never experienced purely in that way it's never experienced purely in that way like they you know the the, the idea that you could have you know a, a non a purely non-identitarian relationship to class there's a much more complex and sticky and messy sort of dynamic relationship there um uh, you know as i think you know a lot of us have had to navigate especially those of us who you know come from from backgrounds which have been you know, class mobile that have been certainly educationally mobile. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that, that I suppose I've been thinking about in terms of the consequences of the Johnson landslide is that I, f I felt very strongly this year that, you know, it's it's 10 years since 2010. Um, it's 10 years since, since you know, 10 years of Tory government. Um, it's it's 10 years really since you had the beginning of that sort of Owen Jones-ish project, I mean, not ish, and the Owen Jones-headed project that resulted in Chavs, you know, his book about class and class identity. And I've been thinking about that era a lot simply because, you know, it feels very frustrating to be in a situation where it looks like austerity is on the horizon again. You know, Laura Kunzberg at the BBC is making the same arguments about, oh, this is like a household budget, a credit card, et cetera, et cetera. The credit card is maxed out. Um, you know, it feels like, you know, it's very frustrating to feel like the, the efforts that everyone has, you know, in a huge chunk of the left has put in over the course of the past 10 years to have like um, a, a more coherent conversation about this stuff. You know, it, it feels like that, 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 you know, has almost gotten nowhere. You know, I, I feel this also because, you know, I was looking at, at, at something um, that was, you know, the, the Guardian podcast the other day went out to interview people uh, in the Red Wall and they were, you know, you could hear this stuff that's very familiar from 2010 about, mm. you know, free school meals are bad because, you know, people have flat screen TVs. Uh, now, look, I know and you know that politics is, in Weber's phrase, the long, slow drilling of hard boards. But it would be nice to feel that there's been a little give. Um, not to feel too bleak about it. Like, I do think the left is in a better state than we were 10 years ago. And, you know, like an immeasurably better state. But, you know, it's quite frustrating to see how rapidly British media and, and kind of the political conversation reverts to the mean. And that mean is a very mean mean. 
Well, I mean, to quote another of the, you know, big theory, big dogs, Stuart Hall, uh, politics does not reflect majorities, it constructs them. And one way in which Boris Johnson's majority has been constructed has been through this image of the Red Wall. And the Red Wall was a phrase which was coined by a pollster in 2019, but it's used as if we've always had this language to describe Ashfield and Colm Valley. Now, I do think those those historic um, labor centers, which were also very tied to organized labor, that's meaningful to talk about. Those losses are definitely meaningful. But there's a kind of imaginary cartography and imaginary map making that's taking place here. And so, Aaron, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how did this story come about and whose story does it actually tell? Is it telling a story about Labour losing the industrial heartlands that it could once rely on? Or is it telling a story of conservative opportunism, being able to pounce on those changes to class composition and assemble its coalition of homeowners? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I'm going to tie it into something I wanted to respond to earlier. You were saying about this decoupling of the Labour Party from its historic social base. People were saying the exact same thing in the early 1960s. In 1962, people said, maybe Labour will never win another general election again. Of course, they hadn't won an election since 1950. By 64, Harold Wilson wins, or they're the largest party. Just 66, they win again. 70, they lose. 74, they win. So, you know, there is two elections in 74. So Harold Wilson effectively wins four of the next five general elections. Now, it's not to say it was a great time for the Labour Party, but we've, we've kind of been here before where people say, well, we've got the rise of this new kind of working class, uh, increasingly based on knowledge work, larger numbers of university graduates. Uh, you know, they're not, <clears throat> they're not necessarily tied to the Labour Party as a form of identity. We've heard that since the early 1960s. That's just one thing to sort of think about. Secondly, in terms of are things improving? I mean, I have to disagree with James a little bit. New Labour gave a knighthood to Philip Green. <laughs> Tony Blair called him a visionary. Gordon Brown made, you know, uh, Alan Sugar a lord. And he made the Fraser Digby a lord. You know, um, uh, Fred Goodwin from the Royal Bank of Scotland was made a knight of the realm. And I do feel like when you look back at that politics from 15 years ago, I genuinely think, I mean, if Labour do ever go back there, it's going to be 15, 20 years time. And if they do, by the way, they'll, they'll collapse a political formation. They just won't exist anymore. Uh, that's my personal view. So I, I do think a great deal of progress has been made, actually. You know, when, when, when the Arcadia Group collapsed uh, two weeks ago now, People immediately said, well, Philip Green, he's got his boat in Monaco. How's this happening? Where's the money going? So I think actually in terms of people's broader understanding of how the economy works and whose interests, I think a great deal of progress has been made. I agree with James, nowhere near as much as we would have liked. And I certainly don't think it's got a, a sustainable foothold in the Labour Party by a long shot. I think the politics still of Labour MPs and councillors and bureaucrats is terrible. And actually, I think it's the right of the public. Even I think it's the right of some conservative voters. And I, I think this gets to what you're just asking now. But I'll also tie it in with a previous point I want to make, which is the Tory party is more responsive than the Labour Party. Whether it's the, whether it's the crisis of the 1920s, uh, the Labour Party come to power in the 1920s, they're committed to free trade and the gold standard. They don't understand that there's a new world out there. There are new you know, opportunities, new challenges. It's basically austerity to uh, 1.0 with Ramsay MacDonald. The same thing happens in the, in the 70s. You know, Margaret Thatcher, I think in many ways, was Labour's Jeremy Corbyn 
in so much as when she ran for the party leadership in 1975, she had, and this is why I don't like people saying, well, Corbynism was always going to fail. She had one person in the shadow cabinet backing her. One person, Keith Joseph. She had nobody else backing her. Now, the, the big difference is that the Tories understood she'd won. They understood she had a different kind of political project, and most of them fell in line. Yes, she had the wets, as she, as she called them. she was much more ruthless. Mm. Come on. She was Corbyn much was never that's, ruthless. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely fair. But I would say that the Tories will get behind. If a Tory leader had done what Corbyn had done in 2017, they would have got behind them 110%. And I, I think it's important to bring Labour back into that conversation because James is right. Yes, you want to talk about the Tories and not the Labour Party. But I think the Tories are much more serious about winning power for the sake of power than the Labour Party are. And I think that's for deeply ideological reasons. And often the media is attacking the left in the, in the name of that argument. I wouldn't just attack the left. I actually, I would attack historically the, sort of the unionist centre-right of the party. In terms of the Red Wall. This is a really important question. I, I read this a few months ago. Tom Hazeldean's new book about uh, the Northern question and the politics of Northern England. In the 1983 general election, obviously it's a catastrophe for Labour. Their vote share in the North of England goes up by 8%. And so this idea of the North of Englanders opposed to the Conservatives, opposed to Thatcher, is very much an outgrowth actually of, of this fragmentation of England four years into Thatcher, because historically there are many mill towns in the North and the Midlands which have been conservative voting for, or were conservative voting for decades. Not all of them. You know, Lee is a good example. Lee is now a conservative safe seat. It's been Labour forever. But there have been many other places which historically have voted Tory. Uh, even Liverpool, you know, until the 60s, the 70s was voting Tory. So I, I think it's right to say that this idea of a, a red wall, yes, we know it was a marketing gimmick kind of conjured up uh, two years ago now, almost two years ago, well, 18 months ago. Uh, but also, you know, it, it doesn't really cohere with reality. You know, Labour's sort of the historic red bases for Labour historically have been, yes, the Northeast, which is actually still by and large got, South Wales, which is still historically by and large got, bits of London, it's, it's basically never done better there, and Scotland, which is completely lost. So I think this idea of the, the Red Wall, I think, is is not right. I think we need to be talking about the fragmentation of the UK and, and, and its electorate. Of course, some of that is explicable because of the fragmenting of the Union. Scotland's gone, I think Wales is probably next, I could be wrong. But also, I think it's partly a, a, an outgrowth of what globalisation does to cities, how it elevates cities and how it downgrades downgrades towns, how it opens up uh, domestic labor markets to, to waves of immigration. And so I think there's two different dynamics there for what's going on when we talk about the Red Wall. One is the, the fragmentation of the union, and the other is globalization. And this just becomes a really easy shorthand to combine those two things. But they're very, very different. They're very, very different. I mean, I don't want to linger too long on the Labour Party just because we haven't yet mentioned coronavirus in our year in review. But I want to ask, I think, maybe one question about Labour because we've talked a lot about Keir Starmer on Navarro Media. We talk about him pretty much every day on Tiski Sour. Me and Aaron write about him a lot. James, even you've uttered his name I mean, once I or try, twice, I, I believe. I very hard not to. I mean, I think the man's a bit of a cipher, to be honest. Um, but go yeah, on. I mean, you've got, to, you've got to put a pound in the Keir Starmer jar every, every time you mention his name. But I actually don't want to talk about Keir Starmer the man. I want to talk about his base. Because when you talk about Corbynites or Corbynistas, it's a really diverse group of people, but there's a political journey within that diversity that you can identify. So you can identify the young people who were radicalized by ship pay, by you know huge amounts of student debt, the betrayal of the trebling of tuition fees, housing, 
you can also talk about, you know, those older veterans of the trade union movement, obviously really important to the Corbyn project, and also public sector workers who'd seen firsthand the damage wreaked by austerity and became really, really vocal supporters of the Corbyn project. So, you know, Corbynista is used very derisively by the press. It usually just means like a fanged Aaron Bastani. But you know, you know who we're talking about when you describe a Corbynite. So who is a Starmerite? So, the, the, you know, I've very recently written about the two um, major books on Corbynism, the um, uh, Left Out and uh, Owen Jones's book, This Land. Um, in, in both of them, it's very clear that, that um, Keir Starmer's strategists identify the major chunk of the Labour membership who you need to bring with you are people that you talk to in the vision thing. Um, those people also value or, or, or can be made to value or can be made to feel to value, certainly after the 2019 defeat, um, you know, a, a vision of kind of competence. And, and look, I mean, you know, lots of people on the left will, will mock Keir Starmer for wanting to appear like a head teacher or like a barrister, which is, is indeed what he is. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's I think it's important to say that for a lot of people, you know, the, the affect of managerialism, the feeling of someone, you know, simply competent, willing to make decisions, able to, you know, uh, handle himself in public uh, in a way that befits a politician. That's very reassuring to a lot of people. And reassuring is, is valuable right now. Um, what lies behind it politically is, is sort of a harder question. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, the, the, the Corbyn project made a lot of Corbynites. It did make an enormous number of socialists. And I think that's quite important, actually. Mm. You know, there are a lot of people who were very pro-Corbyn, but who will, you know, very happily settle for kind of, you know, a bit fairer kind of distribution in, in, in the welfare system, a kind of you know, slightly less cruel and slightly less brutal welfare system. You know, I mean, the, 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 this stuff is, you know, this stuff is like pretty clear when you look at, at the Labour base. without the wall? Yeah, kind of, well, no, to the left of Blair, I think, actually. Mm. Certainly, maybe the, what Blair promised to be in 1997 never quite lived up to. That That's certainly mm. possible. Um, the other thing here, I think, is just to identify one of the great vices of Labour politics, which is conformism. Um, conformism <laughs> is, is the great hound that stalks Labour politics in some ways, right? Lots of Labour Party members feel like, you know, they <clears throat> they shouldn't ever look too weird, um, and you know, there's 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 a grain of truth here, right? Which is that you know, politics actually you do you do have to think about how you come across. Uh, <laughs> it does actually matter. Uh, it's a, it's quite a significant political skill, um, not one that has always been in evidence on our side of the divide. Um, and you'll be punished for your weirdness in a way that Jacob Rees-Mogg will never be. Absolutely, for absolutely, absolutely. Um, nonetheless, there is a form of conformism which leads to the kind of authoritarianism that you saw under the Blair ministries. So like absolutely the, the Home Office under Blair um, you know, was authoritarian for many reasons other than conformity, but like it's mm. totally like absurd attitude to drugs. Uh, it's utterly risible uh, approach to cultural issues. Even it's, you know, you know, foot dragging over kind of gay marriage. Uh, this stuff comes from that vice and it's a vice the Labour Party should lose. Uh, I, I just just seen Juliet Jakes in the uh, in the comments. I said Fraser Digby, who of course was the Swindon goalkeeper in the mid to late 1990s. <laughs> you meant Digby Jones, uh, I think. 
I meant Lord Digby Jones. I mean, Digby's such a weird name. There's only two Digbys I know. So thank you for pointing that out, Juliet Jakes. I did not mean the Swindon goalkeeper. He did not become a lifelong unelected legislator under the new Labour government. Um, who is a Starmerite? Uh, it's a really good question, and I, I'll, be, I'll be brief. There is a worry that a lot of the people who are the biggest fans of Keir Starmer are effectively Tories who aren't going to vote for the Labour Party regardless. Now, that, that might sound cliched. Obviously, many people have said it. But I, I think it's very, very possible. Uh, and that's something that, of course, is both Keir Starmer's strength. James has kind of implicitly pointed to that because, of course, you do need to win some of these people over. But also it means that his appeal, um, if it doesn't follow through, if it's not entirely successful, won't be reflected in broader results of the Labour Party. And I, I think that's I think that's possible. I have to say, I, I've been really underwhelmed by him. You know, we're nine months into his leadership. And I don't think... What's the legacy so far? Some polling is good. We've not had any elections, so you can't really judge them on that. They've lost members and they've lost money. But the policy message is really ambiguous and and kind of platitudinous. Uh, and so I'm, I'm underwhelmed. I think if the next nine months is like the last nine months, I think he has big problems. The first big test is May. If, if Labour do well next May, he, he's bought himself, uh, you know, all the way through to 2024. If they don't, then I think, you know, people will start coming from. And that won't necessarily be from the left, by the way. It could be from the right. You know, the more he keeps elements of the 2019 manifesto, the more likely that is to happen. I want to I wanna move on to coronavirus simply because I think we've talked a lot about party <laughs> politics and there's something which has dwarfed even the spectacular trauma of, you know, last December the 12th. And that's, of course, the global pandemic, which keeps us all locked inside our houses in a state of deep anxiety. Um, there are a lot of things that this pandemic has, has made visible. It has revealed and exacerbated the already existing inequalities in our society. It has also shown us uh, that the social usefulness of someone's work correlated directly with their exposure to infection and risk of death. And that this same social usefulness was you know, inversely proportional to how much uh, they get paid for the work that they do. Um, the pandemic quite plainly, shows how dependent we all are on each other. You can't hold to that Thatcherite line if there's no such thing as a, as society when my safety depends on your safety and vice versa. We've all got to do things which keep each other safe. And so, James, I want to put this to you. Do you think that coronavirus has or will lead to a revived politics of solidarity? It's an interesting question because I, I want to try to resist the temptation that arises for people on the left, which is almost always to say uh, this disaster will remind us um, why we must depend on each other. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's a form of kind of hopeful uh, uh, epistemology, a kind of epistemology of hope, you know, the way where you describe the thing that you want to happen as if that's going to make it happen. Um, I, I try to be a little... Um, bleaker than that uh, in in my outlook. No, no, but look, I mean, what you're saying here is obviously true, right? It's also obviously true, for instance, that you know, so so it's obviously true that we know that this has foregrounded the kind of centrality of those social forms of work, um, those work, those forms of work which involve care, but you know, those those forms of work that involve also other forms of kind of social reproduction on, on a mass scale. It, it does seem to me that it, you know the other part of this argument is about 
that we know it's been mishandled, right? So it's obvious to those of us on the left that it's been very, very badly mishandled. The thing that I think is important to remember is that this doesn't actually necessarily mean that accountability will follow. You know, the Britain is very, very good at diffusing accountability. You see this at the moment with the Grenfell inquiry, right? Um, you know, it, it's it's been going on for so long, and you know, you're going to well, one, you've got all, all sorts of kind of quite shameful forms of amnesty in order to allow people to testify. Anyway, but you can see the way in which like British culture you know, institutes these inquiries in order to kind of diffuse responsibilities like so extensively that no one person can be held accountable. But we know where accountability lies for a lot of this stuff. Um, you, but you can see, you know, the left tends to think uh, it's obvious how badly Boris Johnson is screwing this thing up. Um, it's obvious how, how little he cares, how incapable he is, um, you know, how much he, he is incapable of taking decisions in the interest uh, of the majority of citizens. But I think the thing that we should realise is, you know, it's also possible to imagine how Johnson comes through this actually with very little dirt on him, right? You know, if the Treasury spending works insofar as like there's not some horrible crisis in January, um, you know, if, if the vaccine rolls out pretty successfully and actually there's just that bit of time before you get the real damage to the economy really kicking through, then there's sufficient space for him to blame it on something else and, you know, he can get away with it. That is the thing, you know, the more time there is between, uh, you know, action and consequence in politics, the harder it is to, to pin on people. The other thing to say here is that, you know, the, the, this has been a very difficult crisis for the left in some ways. All of the things that we sort of know how to do involve mobilization and working as groups of people. It's not something that we've been able to do and to replicate in this period. And it's actually, you know, I think it's, I, you know, I think it poses a real problem for us. I think it was really interesting to hear from Mike Davis at the beginning um, mm. of the crisis. And it's something that Andreas Malm repeated on Navarre FM last week, is that the left really has to think about, you know, how, you know, we don't know how long this crisis will go on for. Hopefully the vaccine will work. We'll see the other side of it. But the left has lost a lot of its mobilization around climate in particular, um, it, you know, in the course of the past year. Uh, just one additional thing to say here, the left does need a better account of freedom. Um, and so one of the things that the left, parts of the left can fall into and has have fallen into over the coronavirus problem um, is simply to respond to what the government is doing by saying what the government is doing is bad. Um, we need to account for freedom in a way that can account for the need to, to recognize that our, our freedom depends on everyone else in society as well, mm. right? And so that in order to safeguard that freedom, we take acts that care for one another by staying home. Right. So, so our I'm account smiling because I can hear the Graeber in what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, this is a very Graebery point. Um, but, but, but we do need a better account um, of freedom. And we should also recognize that like being locked in our homes really sucks. Right. It, it, it is really shitty. I feel like I've been climbing the wall this past week um, in particular. I don't know why it's just hitting me now. Maybe it's because there's so little daylight. Um, but look, so the, the positive thing here is that you know, the, there are elements of a left case to be made here. There are elements of a left case that can be articulated about what's gone wrong, about what needs to go better and, and about what it exposes. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I see it quite there yet. And I think we need to, to I mean, it doesn't help that the major, you know, <clears throat> political articulation of the left in this country is sort of blithely nodding along and can't find its own feet to, to articulate something coherently. Um, you know, in response to this, so so I don't know. I mean, it's 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 you know, it's hard. It, like the other thing, you know, 
the other thing here, maybe just just to end on this, I know I'm going on. Um, the coronavirus crisis was, does reveal to us that action on a mass scale, rapid, rapid action on a mass scale is possible, right? I mean, like, look at this amazing scientific achievement. It's a scientific achievement that draws on decades of research, publicly funded research at that, um, research into mRNA, um, you know, various things like that. The, these, these are important things that have been drawn on um, by a society which has focused on a crisis confronting it to you know, undertake a form of significant political change during that period and afterwards in terms of like the mass rollout of the vaccine. We're going to need that on a much, much, much larger scale um, over climate change. We are seeing also some of the problems we're going to confront there, um, you know, the way in which like, there is a strong reactionary element who will very cynically deploy um, you know, the, the, the anxieties that people feel about the way in which their lives will change suddenly uh, in order to kind of retard development on that stuff. So, so lots and lots to, to, to make out of it, but like some pretty scary stuff as well. So Aaron, the, the question that I want to talk to you, you know, that I want to put to you is why don't we hear more um, in in our press about the successes of East Asian countries in containing the virus? Because we all want to go back to normal. James is right. I feel like I'm climbing the walls right now. I would push my grandmother out of the way in the vaccine queue just to get back in the nightclub a bit sooner. But <laughs> nightclubs are open in Wuhan. There have been sporting events, you know, in New Zealand, whereas in Europe, we're all playing the lockdown hokey-cokey. So yeah. why hasn't there been more of an attempt to draw from those success stories, which are predominantly found in the, in the Far East? Uh, I think it, you know, it's a really interesting question. And it's not just the Far East as well. I think if you, if you think about Russia, I know this is something you can't say in the British press, country of 140 million people, relatively, you know, it's a middle-income country, they developed their own vaccine pretty quickly. They're exporting it to a number of places. I mean, that's, that's an impressive accomplishment. Or Eastern, Eastern Europe, Eastern and Central Europe. Again, relatively low levels of transmission. You know, we can, we can ask why, but it's strange that apparently two of the countries were actually, basically before this pandemic happened, the countries that were meant to be most resistant to a viral kind of pandemic like this actually turned out to be the worst ones. So America and, and Western Europe. And it was completely capsized. And of course, you're right, East Asia leads on that. Partly, I think, for me, and I just want to respond quickly to what James said, I do think that this will be a huge blow to the mythology of capitalism. Um, that's not to say the left benefits from it. But I think before this pandemic, most people's idea of a wealth creator or an innovator was somebody who created a different kind of vacuum cleaner or put an extra blade on a razor. But when you look at what's happened in regards to the, the vaccine, we get the first genome sequence of COVID-19, that's affected the entire genetic material of the, of, of, the, of the pathogen. January 5th, it's made available to scientists globally to access January 11th. Moderna basically create their vaccine by January 13th. Uh, that's not me saying it, the New Yorkers wrote, written about this, but a number of places have written about it. By January 13th. And so, People, I think, will look at that and say, wow, these are the, 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 the elements of our society creating real value. Actually, these people are much more important to us as a society than Philip Green or, uh, you know, the, the, the Dyson Hoover guy or, you know, whatever sort of latest, you know, the people on Dragon's Den. Those aren't the people creating value. And I do think there's an opportunity there for the left to actually 
reappropriate the idea of innovation. Innovation is really good. You know, people today that have inherited conditions or die from cancer, one day an innovation will save those people. And that's the kind of innovation we need to grab hold of. And James is absolutely right that all of those benefit from decades of publicly funded research and fundamentally cooperation. This idea that, oh, all the great advances made by the human species come from, you know, the magnificence of the individual, it's pure ideology and it's just grossly incorrect. And so you would want to counterpose the network of global scientists that created dozens of potential vaccines within weeks of modeling this pathogen, counterpose those to the idea of Elon Musk as kind of, you know, Iron Man, you know, in real life, or Jeff Bezos. Those are not the people creating... Exactly. Those are not the people creating value. They're capturing value, you know, through monopolies. There's a great deal of value capture. You know, Jeff Bezos increased his personal wealth by 13 billion pounds in one day. Remarkable. But they're not creating new value. That's what the people are doing at Moderna. Not, when I say people, I don't mean lobbyists. I mean the researchers, the scientists mm. at Moderna, at Pfizer, at AstraZeneca. And then in terms of the, the, the well, Britain's not done very well here, nor has Western Europe generally. I find it really interesting. I didn't know anything about Russia's industrial policy or its industrial and research policy. And basically, very quickly, the Russians are talking to Chinese. The Chinese have a, a world-leading genomics company. There's two big companies right now which are outstanding at gene sequencing and genomics. One is Illumina in the United States. One is another one in China. I think it's called, I think it's called BMI, something like that. I mean, not body mass index. Uh, and you've got these two outstanding companies, unsurprisingly, one in the US, one in China. And the, this company in China has quite close connections to the Kremlin. And so they give them a bit of a heads up and they say, you may want to start funding your own kind of pilots as to a, a vaccine and so on. And actually, this was done in a way which is quite similar to what Mariana Mazzucato talks about the entrepreneurial state, how the state was funding private businesses to, to respond to particular problems. Now, on the one hand, yes, that can tend to clientelism. Yes, it can uh, tend to the, the sort of the nepotistic politics long associated with the Kremlin. But on the other, there was a strange integration, or that's how it struck me anyway, between the market and the state in Russia that simply was unthinkable in Britain. Uh, you know, instead we had Matt Hancock on, 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 on Mar on a Sunday saying, if you manufacture things, could you please make respirators? You know, we, we look ridiculous. And so I think, yes, it's important to talk about the, dist the distance between us and say Cuba and Vietnam on test and trace, but actually across the piece, I think compared to, not just Britain, I would say Britain and the United States, compared to Germany, compared to Vietnam, compared to South Korea, compared to China, even Russia, I think there's been real, real opportunities to think about what we could be doing better as a country, uh, whether it comes to funding research, whether it comes to the basics of, of whether or not we outsource these things. And I think it does all come back to the idea of the relationship between the state and the market. For 40 years, we've been told that the, the market always does things better. It's impossible for the state to do something better. And I think the big lesson for this year, and surely we have to learn this as a society, is that it's simply not true. There are many, 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 many things the state can do better than the market. Not everything. You know, I don't want the state to make this pencil. I'm perfectly happy buying, you know, cheap pencil, you know, through, through markets. Although if there's negative externalities like environmental destruction, it should be taxed. But when it comes to things like healthcare, pandemic control, I think energy infrastructure, things like housing, yes, the state is perfectly placed. And so for me, that's the big lesson of this year. And I think, I think many, many people will take it to heart. D does that mean the left benefits? No, because that has to be exploited by politicians. Uh, and right now we're not seeing that with, with Labour. We're also not seeing it with the Democratic Party in the US.
I want to move on to to Black Lives Matter because one of the things that James said is that the left hasn't been very good at mobilizing this year. The big counter argument to that are the huge worldwide mobilizations we saw in support of Black Lives Matter, which of course uh, experienced this renaissance after the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police. Um, you know, those images were broadcast around the world. There's also been a kind of, of syncretism with, you know, Ghanaian police being protested against, you know, by you know black Africans saying that, well, hang on, police brutality is happening here. You know, again, with the end SARS movement in Nigeria, um, you know, these huge protests which have ended in, in bloodshed, um, you know, the protesters at, uh, you know, Lekki toll gates being fired upon by the military. Uh, they were protesting the notorious uh, anti-robbery unit, which is, you know, notoriously violent, notoriously corrupt. Um, so this has had a context outside of the global north as well. Um, and one of the questions that I guess I want to just throw out to both of you and whoever wants to pick it up, like, you know, the first dog getting at the stake, you know, go for mm. it, um, is a question of, of, you know, can Black Lives Matter be considered hegemonic? Because if you told me last year that the Premier League was going to have players take the knee before the whistle goes. You've got the little, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, Chiron coming up on the screen um, that you would have Nike, you know, coming out and saying, oh, actually, we've been bankrolling Colin Kaepernick all of this time. You know, there is a section of capital which has really got on board with the movement. And then on the other hand as well, you've got the opposition which came from Donald Trump, who was viciously, viciously opposed to, to Black Lives Matter, called for you know huge amounts of state violence to suppress it. And in our government as well, you've got the kind of, you know, war on woke, spiked online government, um, you know, in the form of like Munira Mirza and Kemi Badenoch and, and many others as well. It's got a section of capital on its side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got, you know, a fair amount of support amongst younger people, though 55% of people polled recently said that uh, it has increased racial tensions. What do you think? Hegemonic or no? Well, if I can jump in on the question of hegemony, I mean, you know, it's sort of classically hegemonic in some ways, right? In, in that it's, it, it is exerting its ideological character over sections of society which are not automatically part of its block. Mm. On the other hand, I think... It is so, you know, Keir Starmer took the knee and then, um, you know, enthusiastically voted for the Spy Cops bill. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, the Spy Cops bill, you know, this is a, a, a bill, you know, the, the details of which are complex. It's fair, you know, it's, it's worth saying that, 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 you know, elements of it are important about putting these services on a legal footing. Um, but, but basically, it gave the kind, the unit that spied on the Lawrence family that inserted a cop into a justice campaign um, for Stephen Lawrence. Uh, You know, if if BLM were meaningful and were meaningfully embraced, it would be impossible to do that, right? I mean, it put put that unit, you know, it gave it, you know, real carte blanche, actually. It was a shameful bill. The Labour Party should never have voted for it. Um, You know, it, it, it it is... 
devastating actually i think to to see it happen i equally mm. devastating is is the way in which again the british state has been treating the whole issue of spy cops including its frankly shameful uh, inquiry which has delayed for years um, and has treated the women involved um, you know nauseatingly actually but you know let's leave that for the time being and, and stay on this question um, yeah so I mean the, 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 the perverse issue here is is the way in which these demands get gradually uh, you know filtered when they're taken up um, in their most kind of pal palatable forms. Nonetheless, look, I mean, you know, it, it has made, I think the better way to think about it is that it has, it has made the question of racial justice unavoidable uh, in both British and American societies. It doesn't mean it's always going to be on the, on the front, front foot. It doesn't always mean that that, that question is always going to be, uh, you, you know, easily avoided. And and yes, it is going to produce backlash. Like successful mm. campaigns produce backlash. It's it's part of what they're for. Um, you know, like these people, these sort of like biz, you know bizarro kind of semi-fascist celebrities who, you know, um, you know, effectively make their name by saying, you know, I I you know I, I'm a racist. Uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, th th this stuff you know is the sign of a political movement that is having an effect. Um, you know, the, it's not to my mind that racial tensions have increased, whatever racial tensions means. I mean, you know, to, you know, certainly racism is now more commented on and more visible and more in political contention. Good. I'm sure that um, makes a lot of racists very tense. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the other side of this, of course, is the, the thing, you know, just to, to bring it up to the contemporary is the rise, I think, over the course of, you know, and it's, it's a lie to this kind of celebrity culture, actually, I think. The rise over the course of, of this year of the sort of, you know, I call it the live, laugh, Lebensraum tendency, the sort of <laughs> cosmic right, uh, Nazi yoga teachers, uh, and this stuff, you know, preying on this sort of uh, the, the kind of technology of the self of the, that is so beloved of, 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 of Western culture. That that allies. It's a very insidious and very dangerous thing. It's that again in, is in no way hegemonic. But certainly, if we were starting to look to twenty twenty one, it's certainly something that we should think about. Um, will become more and more visible, and it's latched on really very strongly to to Corona. Uh, this stuff is it, it has made a uh, a real name for itself, and it's made itself really attractive by playing on those fears about freedom, as, we, as I was talking about earlier, those kind of those anxieties about freedom, and taking them and said, okay, well, we're the people who are really talking about freedom, and your freedom is threatened by these, you know, you know of course, you know, in the, the accounts of these people, black people themselves have no agency, it's actually uh, a cabal of sinister Marxists, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, so, so this stuff is, is out there. It's dangerous. It's real. Um, I'm very thankful and deeply, um, you know, I deeply admire, uh, the, the, the way in which those mobilizations took place this, this year. I and mean, I think for me, the, the signal moment is that, that image of Angela Davis, who is of course in, in a risk category for Corona, standing out the sunroof of her car. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with the, therefore there being sufficient distance for her to address people with her fist raised in the air. And, I, it, you know, it's, such, it's just a profoundly beautiful image. Uh, and so, so think, you know, obviously, you know, there's a lesson for all of us there in thinking about how to mobilize in times like this, saying like, you know, actually mobilization is important and we can't let it just fall by the wayside. Um, we have to think carefully about how to care for each other um, while undertaking those mobilizations, but like simply not doing it isn't an option. And I, I want to talk to you, I guess, a bit about about the kind of 
insurgent white nationalism, which even though it has uh, been kicked out of the White House by the you know results of the election in the US, still is, is very powerful. You've got the Proud Boys, you know, roaming around the streets looking for people to beat up, you know, really horrific images. The, you know, murder of two people, allegedly, I have to say, by Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, you know, in Wisconsin. Um, and, and I was thinking, as James was talking about the difference between Black Lives Matter, which is a politics born of love and of grief. There's a really powerful sense of grief suffusing everything to do with the Black Lives Matter movement from the immediacy of those images of George Floyd being murdered, the origins of Black Lives Matter as a slogan after the acquittal of George Zimmerman uh, for the killing of, of Trayvon Martin. And then even some of the most iconic moments of this round of Black Lives Matter, John Boyega addressing the crowd in Hyde Park, impassioned and emotional and clearly grieving. You could hear it in his voice when he said, do you know how it feels to wake up every day and see that your race means nothing? And on mm. the other hand, you've got this politics, you know, espoused by, I think, some of these, you know, celeb semi-fascists, uh, you know, that James is alluding to here of racial resentment, which bulks and bristles at the very mention of institutional or structural racism. And it's got an audience. It's sort of playing on this, you know, disdain and irritation. And so looking towards the the next year what do you think is going to happen uh with that politic with that emotional affect of you know reactionary racial resentment you know something which i think is being stoked up you know very cannily by figures like lawrence fox with his reclaim party uh which mm. essentially has this huge problem with the language of of anti-racism I don't think it's the issue is <clears throat> I don't think the response is coming from some sort of popular groundswell from below. I, I very much view that in this country, I can't talk with any authority about the US, uh, but in this country, it's, it's pretty clear. You know, you look at the lineup of people, for instance, that present shows on RBC, Nick Ferrari, previously Nigel Farage, uh, various other people to talk radio. Then you've got this new GB News. Farage has potentially got a media venture. The Telegraph, The Times, The Sun. Uh, and, and it does feel like, you know, you, you've had an altercation recently with a, with a journalist on Twitter. I won't mention their name. It does feel like a lot of this stuff comes really from the top of the British media culture. You know, it's not a sort of a, a movement, so to speak. I thought George Floyd should have been Time Person of the Year. Now, you know, it's not to say that, oh, you know, Time is a left-wing publication. They often give incoming presidents, the, you know, Time Person of the Year. And to be fair, Joe Biden, I think, surprised many people by winning the popular vote to the extent that he did, myself included. Um, but it, it clearly is a, a major movement. And I think if you think of movements in the last 10 years which have proven successful, there aren't many. The movement for tax justice is probably one. Um, it, you know, who, who argues now for tax dodging in the way that George Osborne did in the in, in the 2000s when he was once on the, the predecessor show to, to Politics Live? Um, and then I think we've got this one. I think we've got Black Lives Matter. And it's amazing when you've got a movement which basically goes all the way from Angela Davis to Roy Keane on, you know, Sky on a Monday, and he's wearing his NHS badge and his Black Lives Matter badge. And that is quite, it's quite clearly an explicit overture to... You know, I, I, they've now told people to not be political. He's basically saying, fuck you. 
And I think when this really clocked for me was um, when Millwall fans made basically the whole, you know, this ridiculous gesture uh, of two teams come to come together and, you know, come together, clamp their arms and not take the knee. And then when QPR score a goal, a couple of players, I think one was black or maybe both were black or mixed heritage, they take the knee in front of these Millwall fans. And, you know, look at the England football team. You know, look at Premier League clubs. They, they have, you know, at least 30 to 50 cent um, players from minority backgrounds. You, you can't have football in this country if you're not going to acknowledge that black lives matter. It's, it's not going to work. And I think actually that's also broadly true for the rest of the country. 35% of kids in primary schools in England uh, are BAME, 35%. Mm-hmm. And now it's not just those kids. They aren't some like block. Not all of them and their parents will agree with the, the ideas of Black Lives Matter, but clearly they will, they will say that there are issues of racism which we need to deal with as a society. They also have friends. They also have colleagues, you know, and, and so there are broader social networks which actually say, you know what? This is probably a good thing. I don't have to agree with everything for it to be a good thing. And what James said, I think, is entirely right. Yes, it's, 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 it's made the issue of racial justice a more salient one. Good. And I thought when you were talking about this on television, actually, I thought you were so, I thought you were outstanding, typically outstanding. But this time, you know, you were particularly good. Oh, so even, even, even in his own time, oh, Martin Luther King, yeah. being, I mean, even, his, even in his own time, Martin Luther King, you know, if there was a Navarro media in the mid 1960s, we hopefully we'd be backing his tactics. But we wouldn't be saying this is how you build a majoritarian movement, because all the opinion polling shows that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the majority of white Americans didn't agree with him. And yet you get the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So that's a classic example of how you get authority, legitimacy, and ultimately leverage without necessarily having a majority of your target audience agree with you. I think actually in this case, BLM is, is doing, not doing better. I think it's obviously starting from a better place. We don't have Jim Crow and segregation. Uh, but I, I think it's probably, when history looks back at 2020, actually I think... The pandemic will be huge, but I think it won't be as all-consuming as it's been for us living through it. And I think BLM may be bigger. Uh, I think it's, I think it's easily the most powerful anti-racist movement of my lifetime. Um, I guess we'd have to we'd have to get somebody in from the mid '60s to compare it to the civil rights movement. Well, I keep trying to get Angela Davis to come on downstream. Maybe next year will be our year. Um, we have been on the air for about an hour when there's still so much more to come. I'm going to shift gears into looking forward towards the future just a little bit. And I mean, I guess my question, and I want you to answer first, Aaron, because this is something which has really been your area of interest, uh, you know, kind of future oriented leftism is kind of your calling card. Um, (laughs) so Aaron, is all we can expect from the rest of the decade just a state of permanent crisis? Probably, probably. But I mean, that's that's aided and abetted by the media culture. So, for instance, let me give you some good news stories from this year, which you haven't heard about. Late 2019, an African-American woman, a 34-year-old woman with sickle cell anemia was given a new gene editing treatment to not cure her, because cure isn't the correct word, but to effectively remove the symptoms she was suffering from sickle cell anemia. That was December 2019. A a year later, she is not getting any of the symptoms from sickle cell. That's because of a revolutionary gene therapy. Have have you heard that story, Ash? No, no, I have not. It was was the only British outlet to report on it was the Financial Times. Um, In the US, it was reported on by NPR and a bunch of other people. 
Uh, what else we've had? We've had we've had uh, next year we're going to be looking at liquid biopsies on the NHS. This is something I talk about in the book. So effectively, to scan for uh, traces of cancerous cells, you will have your blood removed, and there'll be searches effectively for traces of effectively what would be the genome of a tumor. And it sounds a strange thing to say, but it's, that's kind of how it works. This is obviously a lot less invasive. It will ultimately be much cheaper. And the claim is that we'll be able to trace uh, cancerous cells or cancer itself at stage zero, which is to say, and this presents something of a problem, by the way, because you know there'll be no way of confirming necessarily for now uh, whether these tests are correct or not, because to all intents and purposes, the cancer won't actually be visible. And so that's a great story. In 2021, the NHS will be will be trialing this, this technology. And right now, 200,000 people die every year from cancer. It could be that in 10, 15 years' time, that, that number is dramatically cut. So you look at sickle cell anemia, you look at cancer, you go, wow, this is remarkable. You look at the Pfizer uh, vaccine that was developed in a couple of days. So yes, we've got these crises, but it's important to say that that's also what the media wants to focus on. Isn't it remarkable? We have a media that wants to talk about Lawrence Fox's new political party, but not the fact that somebody's just had a gene therapy and there may be uh, an incredibly advantageous way of dealing with something like sickle cell anemia, you know, genetically inherited condition. And actually the exact same technique may apply to a bunch of other inherited conditions. So yes, we're in a moment of crisis, but we're also in one of opportunity. And I think it's really important to remember that the media wants to focus on the crisis bit. Why? Partly commercial reasons. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and they don't like necessarily technical good news stories. And obviously, a lot of these things are highly technical. Uh, but I, I think the, the space where the left enters now is so difficult because you have this sort of interface between the crisis, between the opportunity, you know, between rising racism, but also between, the, you know, between these technologies that could eradicate diseases which have plagued us since we've existed an amazing time to be alive. And I don't say that lightly. It's been a sort of platitude people have said for a very long time. But I think when I look at the big stories of late 2020, the Hayabusa lander coming back from a, an asteroid with traces of an asteroid, you know, James would mock me for asteroid mining. You know, the technology is there. The technology is there to, to do it. We might not want to do it. We might not need to do it. But the technology is, is gradually appearing to do that possibility of cultured meat again we can have that conversation personally i think that's necessary i don't think the whole world is just going to adopt a vegan diet but you have these remarkable breakthroughs and again if we can just get people to grasp how the base of all of this is our fundamental ingenuity as a species but also our capacity for cooperation you know yes humans can be assholes but the idea that we're more competitive than cooperative is, is completely untrue and, and i think if we can move the dial on the debate to the fact that we are more cooperative than we are competitive, I think we have a shot. Well, I'm seeing a little suggestion here, which is um, that we should do a good news section every week. Um, no, maybe not a fit for downstream, but we can put it to Michael Walker and say, oi, mate, cheer up. Um, speaking of cheering up, oi, James. Ah, so, yes, you've you know. come to the cheeriest <laughs> member of the team. <laughs> Oh, yeah, Bleecker Street, as I like to call you. <laughs> so I, just sort of picking up on what Aaron talked about, which is, you know, that this is also a time of great opportunity. I think all of us are in, in agreement that that opportunity is only meaningful if there are political vehicles which, which force it into being. Mm. And we don't always know the consequences 
long term down the line of the things we do until the things we do until they happen. So the student movements, which all three of us were a part of, uh, you know, that day of defeat in Parliament Square was was dispiriting, to say the least, bruising often quite literally. And though it was defeated, the student movement had a very long tail. And we've talked about this a lot before. You can trace a kind of lineage from the tuition fee vote to Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader of the Labour Party, which was unimaginable, even as it was happening. So if you could perhaps not predict, but speculate in a best case scenario kind of way, what the politicizing outcome of this year might be on the country's young? Yeah, this is such, is such an interesting question. I think, I think where to start with this is, is the question that you asked Aaron, right? And you asked him about whether this decade is going to be a decade of crisis. And the answer, of course, is yes, but, but crisis is a word with, with these multiple meanings. Um, uh, it's a thing that Reinhard Koselleck, a, a very interesting theorist, hard to pin down, not entirely sure he's on the left as such, or was on the left as such. Anyway, um, m- makes the point that the etymology of crisis is, is primarily actually a medical one in Greek, um, from, from Krino Krinein, um, you know, which is where you make the decision, right? So the the diagnosis or the decision, and, and so the the point here about crisis is is that it is something which you know w- one of the things that is so alarming and that is very difficult, I think, for all of us, is that the experience of the past decade has been an experience of crisis, but it's been an experience of crisis in which um, the the terminus of crisis, i.e., the moment at which the crisis resolves into a decision one way or another has been endlessly deferred. So we, we've been in this kind of rather sapping and um, you know, rather destructive uh, uh, sort of, I'm trying to avoid the awful Gramscian, um, much, 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 much overquoted Gramscian uh, uh, quote of, about the interregnum, but, but you know, if I were to quote it, it would go here. It nonetheless has felt like that over the past 10 years and, and the, the, consequences, the consequences of this are real, that, that, that actually it's quite hard to figure out like, where the space to act is. But so let's say that the stuff that has been kind of deferred or that has not been adequately dealt with over the course of the past decade has been very visible this year and will continue to, to be visible over the course of the next decade. Um, and that means that the crisis will not be endlessly deferrable. We know that the crisis is not endlessly deferrable. We know that the crisis, particularly when it comes to climate change, is not endlessly deferrable. And, it, you know, and, and that means that, you know, that there will have to be political resolutions to some of this stuff one way or another. And you know, it's, it's worth saying that, so it seems to me that, that I don't think, so I don't think politics is the sole preserve of the young. I think the question of what the next generation takes into the course of the next decade um, you know, can go in one of two ways. And the vice that I, I fear, what I worry about, is a culture which produces uh, an extremely atom, atomized sort of post-neoliberal identity in which a sort of, a, you know, a way of thinking about the world which I would call sort of Hobbesian, 
predominates <laughs> in which um, society is a very thin veneer over uh, a war or, or what is always a, a, a potentially a latent and potential war of all against all. Right. And so I think, you know, we've got to act culturally. And, and, and you know, one of the things that's so, 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 so important is to say that, that this assumption, which is the assumption of, you know, many, many people in politics, many, many people on the right, and is the default assumption of lots of our cultural production, in fact, is not a given. It is not true. It is not something that is determined out there. This ontology, this social ontology is not a given. Don't use those words when you're talking to people about it. It's not necessarily so is a that, is that what phrase. Is that on the doorstep in a marginal constituency? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, it's not. But I think when we're speaking among ourselves, it is a reasonable phrase to use. So what I say is you need to push back against that idea. But I think also, look, the, the, the crisis, you know, I mean, you know, I am a bore for saying this stuff. But the crisis, you know, as I said earlier in the show, Corona has put these things in front of us, these kind of disparate elements of a possible solution to some of the really, really severe and profound problems facing us. Those problems are actually as much to do with the, the way capitalism doesn't seem to be working, doesn't seem to be recovering in the mm. way that you would expect classic, you know, capitalism in its classical period to recover, um, you know, post 2008, it was kind of like, you know, footling along, you know, whatever, um, it, you know, but, but the, the real problem here, the real thing that is going to animate our politics over the course of the next decade is climate change. And, you know, it, it's, it's not enough just to say, oh, well, X are, you know, good, but they haven't quite got it right. Um, you know, if only we'd got the Green New Deal, even that stuff is, is, you know, it's good, but it's, it's insufficient. And the kind of decisions that we're going to have to make on this stuff are, 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 really really terrifying ones and the thing that terrifies me above all is the possibility of two things one is the emergence among the young of a kind of reactionary lifeboat politics that says mm -hmm. the world is going to hell we can avert the very worst of global heating but we can only do it by condemning half of the planet to death that is a real political danger and it is out there and it is coming and the right now it's coming and they're going to try to profit from it the other thing that we have to that, 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 is, that, that should be on our minds about this stuff is a phrase that is there in the Communist Manifesto about the common ruin of the contending classes, right? And this is where I push back against some of my friends who, who say, oh, you know, um, the transition to socialism is inevitable. Uh, it's not inevitable. It is quite possible that, 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 that we face the, the common ruin of the contending classes by being unable to come out of the period in, in which we currently exist. And it's why, it's why, you know, I'm always very cautious about treating kind of stories of technological advance as good stories, because I, I think it's great, actually, that we can put um, a, a, an exploration vehicle on an asteroid. I think it's shameful that we do it when starvation still exists on the planet. And I just do. I, I, I can't get past that point politically. Um, but, but that's it. But the, the, I think it's easy to make a sort of... I do think that that's true, obviously, James, but I think a gene therapy for sickle cell anemia... Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, that's a, a different, it's a different question. It's a different question. We'll leave it there. I mean, but the, 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 I think the big... 2021 for me is no, but the left needs to start talking about biotechnology in a really serious way. You know, we are scratching the surface in terms of what we can do in terms of healthcare, you know, people quite openly have said it took two days to produce a vaccine because the financial incentives were there. You know, there haven't been for a bunch of other things because they simply won't make money. This will. I think that's something we need to be talking about more. Well, oh this seems God, like so a good time to remind our viewers that back in the day, in the early days of Navara FM, when FM was all that existed, uh, and it was just Aaron and James in there, I think, squatted little... <laughs> 
gaff in <laughs> southeast London, if I recall correctly. Uh, they, they were called Shouty Man and Sad Man. And I'll let our audience guess who was who. Um, Aaron, James, thank you so much it's been such a pleasure it's been a delight Mm. i love these family shows we used to do them a bit more often but then we um banished james to the world of audio so if you want to hear it's far superior to to the tyranny (laughs) of the visual image it is the visual images are the least imaginative medium in the world anyway whatever james (laughs) likes radio it's a medium for despots quite frankly. <laughs> so said Adorno. Um, but if you want to find out more about James and his terrible despotic tendencies, go over to Navara FM. He's got a wonderful back catalogue, um, an interview with Andreas Malm on eco-terrorism, which is amazing if it doesn't get us all done for excitement. Um, no Aaron, of course, you can see him on Downstream. He's also got his uh, series of the Bastani Factor, uh, hot take videos, which pop up every now and again, raining hot takes down upon your very head. Really wonderful stuff. Um, of course, we've also still got our fundraiser going on. So go to navaramedia.com forward slash support if you want to donate a little bit of money. And before I let you all go, this Saturday at 7pm, we have a Christmas pub quiz. My round will be Navara Media Gossip. And if you want to take part, go to twitch.tv forward slash Navara Media. See, we're down with the youth. First we get a Twitch and then a, I think in January an OnlyFans. I'm not um, entirely thank sure you what both. a Twitch is. What's an OnlyFans? <laughs> what's no, Twitch? That one I know, but uh, a Twitch, <laughs> I have no idea. When's the James Butler theory OnlyFans coming <laughs> Um, but yeah thank you so much Aaron James uh, you guys have been great and thank you to our lovely audience for joining us tonight on Downstream bye this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media go to navaramedia.com slash support <laughs>